invite Mike Henry to come up and preach. Mike is, uh, has been worshiping with us for a number of months. Uh, comes to us from uh, Knoxville, is that right? Well, First, via Chicago, via Chicago and yeah. Guatemala and a few other uh, places. Mike has spent a lot of time doing uh, street ministries, working with prostitutes and sex workers and homeless people uh, and some other things, uh, and has been helping us uh, here in Eau Claire, been taking some people out uh, to do that. And uh, you do have seminary education from uh, Garrett, Garrett, Evangelical Seminary, and, and, yeah, and a Lutheran seminary, although not ever pursued ordination, but do have a, a theological degrees. So uh, he's going to share the good word with us this morning. So Mike, I invite you to come forward. Well, this is a hard act to follow. The last two weeks, Pastor, two weeks ago, talked about the prophet Isaiah and had a powerful sermon. And then last week, Professor Eleazar comes here and gives us this powerful prophetic sermon. I'm just thinking, wow, I've got to follow these two, you know. And so I thought, well, okay, here we go. And so we, they tell you in seminary that, you know, probably it's not best to start your sermon with a joke. You know, you can do it, but, you know, sometimes you don't pull it off. It doesn't work right. So I thought, well, well, maybe I'll just give a true story. Or I think it's a true story. Or it could have been a true story. This woman dies and goes to heaven. She meets St. Peter at the gate. Now, this could have happened. <laughs> See, St. Peter says, well, what brings you up here? Well, she said, I spent all day in church and... When it was over, I got in my car and I went across this busy intersection and I got T-boned and here I am. So uh, what's it take for me to go through the pearly gates? And St. Peter says, well, we got a simple spelling test. If you spell the correct word, you can come right on in. And so she says, well, I'm pretty good at spelling. She says, well, what would you like me to spell? St. Peter thinks for a minute and he says, well, spell the word love. And she says, oh, okay, L-O-V-E. He says, well, come on in. So sometime afterwards, uh, she sees St. Peter up in heaven, and he says, listen, can you watch the front gate for me? Because uh, I've got some business to do, and I just need someone out there in the front. And so she says, oh, sure, I can do that. And so she goes out front, and pretty soon through the mist, she sees this figure coming at her, and it's her husband on earth. And she says, well, what brings you up here? And she says, uh, or he says, uh, well, you know, I spent all day in a bar drinking, and then, you know, when I got done, I... Went in my car and I went across this busy intersection and I got T-boned. And she says, oh, okay. What's it take for me to go through the pearly gates? She says, well, we have a spelling test. He says, oh, all right. So what word would you like me to spell? And she thinks for a minute. She says, well, spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> now, I'm just saying, maybe a pastor ought to hold a class for men on how to spell because it's... You just never know. <laughs> and see, all the, all the times I've told this, this, this Joe, true story over, you know, the decades I've preached, yeah, I still don't know how to spell Czechoslovakia, so I'm <laughs> going to have to work on my spelling. See, last week was an important time for our church. We had many visitors Professor Eleazar Fernandez from United Seminary and his wife and daughter attended service here. And Professor Hernandez was a guest speaker and lecturer. And part of the reason for Professor Fernandez 
wanting to be here was to meet one of our members, Joy, who was from the same denomination in the Philippines. She's from the UCC, UCCP. Other Filipino people attended and other guests and folks who saw the advertisement for the event in the newspaper came and it was a great day. Our congregation put a lot of work and it was very successful. Professor Fernandez preached a powerful and prophetic sermon and Pastor David's prayers that were offered up afterwards could have been a sermon in themselves. Now how is it that Professor Fernandez's sermon was so well received here? Pastor Fernandez could not just go anywhere and deliver a sermon like he did. There are many churches that would not have taken that would have taken offense by the words of the pastor. Well, I think I may have the answer. He had a setup man. Just like Jesus had a setup man in the name of John the Baptist, his second cousin, Pastor Fernandez's setup man was Pastor David. Pastor David is a teacher, and throughout the years he has been bringing this congregation along with his teachings through his sermons and classes and not all ministers are teachers and not all ministers prepare their congregation to hear the prophetic and powerful message of scripture now to make clear pastor Eleazar is not Jesus and pastor David does not wear camel hair and eat wild honey and locusts well at least not publicly <laughs> but I think our church here at Plymouth is starting to hear that prophetic message. And we're starting to hear the cry of the poor. And we're responding in kind. This is no accident. For more than 30 years, I've been trying to figure out how to convey a sense of urgency to the Christian community about the suffering that happens here at home and around the world, which involves the majority of the people on this earth. At times, it seems like an almost unsolvable question. So today, I want to take you on a journey with me and reflect on some of the suffering that I have witnessed over the last few decades. I've met people that have come along in my life that have allowed me to have the opportunity to understand and see the suffering and what it actually means to live, and live the gospel. Now, I'm kind of an unorthodox preacher, and I like to use metaphor and visuals, and you may be saying to yourself after the service, well, that was a strange man that gave that sermon today. And see, I'm okay with that, as long as you were able to take something out of this sermon. Now, I want to show you a picture. And this picture was taken by a South African man named Kevin Carter. He took this photo in 1993 in the Sudan of a little Sudanese girl trying to make her way to a food tent. 
And behind her is this vulture, like I said. And vultures don't eat living things. They wait until they're dead, and then they move in. And in 1994, Kevin Carter wins the Pulitzer Prize for this particular photo. This photo was also voted one of the top 10 or top 20 photos of the 20th century. That's a big deal. But despite all the success that this young man has received, he later took his life at age 33. And in part over the images that he had witnessed in his short life in the suffering of others. Now, in order for us to remember this young girl, in this picture, we're going to have to give her a name. See, if we name her, we won't forget about her. So let's call her Esperanza, Esperanza, which is Spanish for hope. Little Esperanza is trying to get to the food tent, and she's resting for a minute in order to get enough strength back to complete her journey. Now Esperanza's body may be starting to shut down. Soon, in a number of days, she might not be able to take in food. And then after that, her body will shut down even further, not being able to take in water. We just don't know. But what is important for her and for us is that little Esperanza makes it to the food tent. Now, at this time, I want to give you some statistics on the condition of the world. And I don't want to overwhelm you because when, you get over, when we get overwhelmed, we sometimes can't see a solution. Now stay close because we're taking this journey together. Let me give you a few statistics and we won't remember them all, but one is 2.8 billion people on the planet struggle to survive on less than $2 a day. And more than 1.7 billion people lack reasonable access to safe drinking water. Now, it's hard for me to get my arms around these enormous figures when talking about this kind of disparity. We in the United States are around 4% of the world's population, and we burn up 25% of the coal, 26% of the oil, and 27% of the world's natural gas. North Americans throw away enough foodstuff in a day that could feed the entire world for a week. The average North American generates 52 tons of garbage by age 75. And the average individual daily consumption of water is 159 gallons. While more than half the world's population lives on 25 gallons. I checked that figure from five different sources. I just could not, I found it so hard to believe, 159 gallons. Now, Carlo Carreto writes in his book, Leathers from the Desert, if I love, if I really love, how can I tolerate the fact that a third of humanity is menaced with the starvation while I enjoy the security of economic, or while I enjoy economic security? If I, inf if I act in that I shall perhaps be a good Christian, but I shall certainly not be a saint. And today, there are far too many good Christians when the world needs saints. We must learn to accept instability, put ourselves every now and then in the condition to say, give us this day our daily bread. 
with real anxiety because the bread box is empty. Have the courage for love of God and one's neighbor to give until it hurts, and above all, keep open in the walls of the soul the great window of living faith and a providence of an all-powerful God. Now, let me give you another way of looking at the world. And uh, if you, you look at the globe and you see the world, you see the equator, and in the middle of the map, and if you look north, you'll see the 30th parallel, almost halfway up. And all the countries that live above the 30th parallel, Japan and Korea, the United States and Canada, and all of Europe, including Eastern Europe, Russia, and surrounding countries, that's 24% of the world's population. And that 24% of the world's population uses 80% of the wealth and resources of the world. Now, below the 30th parallel, you have the continents of Africa and Latin America and the southern Pacific Rim and Asia. And these countries are 76% of the world's population that have the 20% of what is left. Where are most of the natural resources in the world located? Well, they're in the southern hemisphere. What is one of the biggest resources that the countries in the North seek? It's cheap labor. What is the second leading traded commodity in the world after oil? Does anybody know? After oil, what is the second leading traded commodity? It's coffee. And all is grown below the 30th parallel. Juan Sobrino is a well-respected theologian of liberation from El Salvador. He quotes, quotes from Luke 16, 19, following. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, and at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. And even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Sabrino states, the coexistence of Dives and Lazarus, chronic and permanent, tolerated and accepted, should cause all humanity, at least everyone with a heart, even before we ask to lower our heads in shame and indignation and anger. Without these primary emotions, there may be no solution for the world. Certainly we must insist on analyzing the cause and seeking solutions, but unless we see something deeply wrong in the mere coexistence of Dives and Lazarus, so wrong it means the difference between simple humanity and inhumanity, then there is no solution. In English, the word obscene harshly describes an unnatural and repulsive situation, and the coexistence of Dives and Lazarus is unseen. Obscene. And he goes on. It is obscene, not only unjust, that the affluent world uses 400 times more resources to care for a baby than does Ethiopia. It's obscene that a Salvadoran woman in a sweatshop earns U.S. 29 cents to make a shirt that Nike will sell to the NBA for $45. Dyes and Lazarus represent an enormous comparative harm in our world. It is an offense to the poor caused by the mere fact of their poverty alongside the opulence of others. 
Even when I was a young person, when this passage was read about Dives and Lazarus, it was a little overwhelming for me. Now many theologians, some economists, and others would say that Dives represents the Western world, those countries that live above the 30th parallel, and Lazarus represents the 76% who live below. Now what does that say to us? Well, in part it means that we need to get little Esperanza to the food tent. Now stay with me now. We're on this journey together. I want you to give you a, fine, uh, a few more statistics or obscenities, however you want to view them. Nearly half the population of the United States now lives in poverty. 400 people in the U.S. have as much wealth as 154 million Americans. The wealthiest 1% of the U.S. population now has 40% of all wealth, more wealth than 90% of the population. And finally, the six heirs to the Walmart fortune hold more wealth than 42% of Americans combined. James Cone is a leading Afro-American liberation theologian in this country from Union Seminary. That was the same seminary the pastor David went to in New York. And he quotes... The old civil rights theme, Amos 521, Pastor talked about that a few weeks back. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And then he goes on to state, Amos and other prophets contend that Israel will be sent back to servitude, not because the people failed to attend religious services, but because the people failed because of the economic oppression of the poor. The same theme of God's solidarity to the victim is found in the New Testament where it receives a universal expression in the particularity of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The appearance of Jesus as the oppressed one cautions us against any easy identification with his ministry. And then he quotes, and it's on your front of your uh, bulletin, by North American standards, Jesus would be considered neither a successful person nor could he be uh, considered morally respectable. He identified with the prostitutes and the drunkards, the unemployed and the poor, not because he felt sorry for them, but in order to reveal God's judgment against the social and religious structures that oppress the weak. Jesus was born like the poor, he lived with them, and on the cross he died like them. You know, I think we really have to be mindful of the products that we consume and overconsume because the foods we buy and the clothes we wear and other products that we think we have to have affects the lives all over the world of people and in some cases determines whether they live or die. Sir Victor Golens, a noted author, a, a Jewish man who predicted the Holocaust to the Jews in Germany in his writings, and a man who doesn't mix words says, the plain fact is we are starving people, not deliberately in the sense that we want them to die, but willfully in the sense that we prefer their death to our inconvenience. I moved up to Eau Claire back in April, and with the help of my Methodist pastor friend Jim Burnett, I wandered into this church one day after seeing it on the internet and talked to Pastor David and he encouraged me to attend service here. I'd been to several other churches in the area and so was trying to find a church home. And once I attended here for several weeks, I decided this is where I want to stay. 
had a real good feeling about the congregation, the warmth of the people here and their commitment to justice. And the fact that Pastor David preached the gospel, those were all important to me. In essence, I knew that this church was a church that could get little Esperanza to the food tent. Dorothy Soley, a German theologian who taught at Union Seminary in New York State, what we need is a life before death and not a life after death. We need to be free from the coercion of sin in our collective life. We're to listen to the cry, to name the need, and to participate in the struggle. Is this our church? Participating in street ministry by hearing the cry, naming the need, and participating in the struggle? Last month, Pastor David, George, and myself went out into the streets of Eau Claire. It was very hot and humid. And to make a long story short, we were driving in downtown Eau Claire, and we saw a woman crouching down, leaning against a building with her head hanging down. So we parked the van and grabbed some water, and we approached her. And you could see she weighed less than 100 pounds. She was severely dehydrated and had eaten in 24 hours. She said she had been in this two-block area for 48 hours. She had survived the thunderstorm and rain the previous night. She had been outside against this building most of the day. And she was invisible to those walking by her. That was the most striking thing I noticed, is that people walked by her and did nothing. One person during the day gave her some money for food, but then moved on. People were going to restaurants and other places in the downtown area, and she was invisible to them. Had she been a potted plant, I'm sure someone would have went into a nearby store and asked the owner to water the plant and maybe give the plants some plant food. But she wasn't a potted plant. She was a human being. Someone could have used their cell phone and called an ambulance or the police to let them know that the lady was in distress. And I'm sure some of the people that passed her by considered themselves good citizens and maybe good Christians. The woman traveled here three days earlier from the Twin Cities and seemed to be somewhat disoriented and confused as far as why she was here. Pastor David remarked that in another 24 hours, she would have been in real trouble. We notified 9-11, and a young police officer responded and was grateful that we called because she was in his territory or zone of influence, and he himself had not noticed her during his time of patrolling. And last Friday, Deb and George and I went downtown to Claire, and we stopped by Sojourner's house to hand out water to people that were waiting for the doors to open, and there was a pretty sizable crowd waiting outside, and not everyone was going to get shelter that evening, and there were only so many beds, and half the people were going to have to lay their heads down outside that night. And Deb went over to a, talk to a lady who called herself Trill. And she was probably in her early 60s. She had been married for 42 years, and when her husband died, she lost her house, and that's the long and short of her story. She had been on the street for a year and a half, and she wasn't able to qualify for a bed and soldier in his house because she had already stayed there for 90 days. And now she was out on the street, and she had to wait another 90 days in order to reapply. And Deb stated that she appeared exhausted and weather-beaten, and she feared the coming winter. 
It's a dangerous life for women to be on the street. And many times they don't sleep at night because of the dangers of being sexually assaulted and someone taking their belongings. And the streets can be very dangerous. But these events happened in Eau Claire. Joy and Derek have also, can also testify to this kind of occurrences when they were out one Friday night doing ministry. It's easy for me to think this happens in Chicago because I was a street minister there for six years and I had seen these scenes repeated over and over again. And, but this is Eau Claire and somehow this just doesn't happen here. Well, you know, Esperanza is everywhere. She still needs to get to the food tent. See, back in the day, Jesus had seen these same kind of things. Jesus grew up under occupation like our sisters and brothers in the Philippines are still experiencing. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was occupied by the Romans, and he was dedicated at the temple in Jerusalem again under foreign control. He grew up in Egypt, then part of the Roman Empire, later returning to Nazareth before beginning his entrance teachings. He later died at the hands of the Roman leaders, leaving a movement in the hands of his followers in a Jewish capital that was under foreign control. And all that to say that Jesus lived his entire life in locations controlled by outside governments. His mother was a Palestinian Jew, and she knew the streets, and she, she had to in order to protect her son. Many of the, the, Jesus' disciples were blue-collar people, and they were familiar with the situation under occupation, and also looked after Jesus. And Jesus, uh, Jesus could not just travel wherever he wanted to travel. One of his disciples was Simon the Zealot. And before his calling to follow Jesus, Simon was a zealous nationalist who wanted to drive out the Romans from the city. And his group's tactics were, resulted in, often in bloody conflict. So Simon knew what was happening and knew what was happening. And he also watched out for Jesus. Jesus was a street minister, and when you grow up poor and you know the streets and the people that live on them, you, when you know the streets, you know the people that live on them, Jesus ministered among the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the homeless and those who were afflicted and those who were possessed. And when you work on the streets, you form relationships with people. You're there to lift up their dignity and to walk with them during their suffering. And if they stumble, you're there to pick them up and helped him to continue on, just like Simon the Cyrene, a black man who helped Jesus carry his cross when Jesus stumbled. People on the street trusted Jesus, and they had his back. And when you establish a relationship with folks, they will watch out for you. Jesus tells us in Matthew 21, 31, I tell you the truth that the tax collector and the prostitute will go to heaven before all of you. The suffering people that society back in the day of Jesus and our society now has such a hard time showing mercy to were the very same people that Jesus identified with. Now, how many churches do you know of today actually do the gospel, do what the gospel calls them to do, and are serving their neighbor outside their walls, handing out water, foodstuffs, listening to those that are suffering and lonely. Most ministers worry about attendance on Sunday, but wouldn't it be a great day when no one showed up for Plymouth for service on Sunday? 
And a visitor would drop, drop in and ask the pastor, well, where's your congregation? And the pastor could say, they're all out seeing to their neighbor, visiting the shut-ins, visiting the imprisoned, feeding the hungry, giving drink to those who thirst, consoling the lonely, and helping Esperanza get to the food tent. You see, we really need to find more churches working outside their walls rather than being locked inside. Congregations that do church rather than just attend. I've always thought that the average church, there are two groups of people that are usually get overlooked. One is our seniors and the other is the youth. Our seniors have lived long lives and they are waiting for the by and by. We think they're waiting for the by and by. and They're in the twilight of their life and we should just kind of leave them be, leave them alone. But our seniors have so much wisdom to pass on to us. They have seen the hard times and most of them have lived through the Great Depression and they know how to save and they know how to be resourceful and they know not to waste and they could give us tips on how to live our lives in a more efficient way. We should be writing down their oral histories. We really need them in this time of age. And our youth, they're so much smarter than we when we were growing up. They have skills we only wish we had. I gave my son a computer back in the day. It was one of those first ones that were big and clumsy and the ones that ran on floppy disk. And my son had never used a computer before. And he came with about eight inches of manuals. And I said, Tom, you've got to read the manuals. And my son proceeded to assemble the computer without reading on how to do it and in a little while he had it up and working and started to show me what I could do. Never once did he look at the manuals. It's just something that's innate within our children. They can teach us so much. One thing they might do is look up boycotted products for example that we shouldn't be purchasing that are made in sweatshops. Most major corporations are on boycott lists and all the fast food chains are, and plus Starbucks, and don't get me started on Walmart. Most all the clothes we wear are made in sweatshops. Remember, what we consume affects people's lives around the world. And the University of Wisconsin is now suing Adidas for violating their agreement with the people that make shoes for the university in Malaysia. A young woman in an Adidas factory makes pennies producing that shoe. She may come in contact with lung disease from breathing the shoe's fibers. And with the cost of material and her pay, Adidas can produce a pair of shoes for around $6. Who's making a profit? Well, it's not that young woman. Adidas has shut down some of their factories in Malaysia and moved them and have refused to compensate the workers for their lost wages. And the young students who are part of the sweatshop coalition at the university are the ones behind this suit. Look at Starbucks. They were only paying an Ethiopian a coffee grower three cents on a cup of Ethiopian coffee. The person serving the coffee at Starbucks made far more than the farmer, and we all know what Starbucks charges for coffee. And here's one more, one of more examples. Another is Coca-Cola. There's a website which is easy to remember, and it's called Killer Coke, K-I-L-L-E-R Coke. And this site tells of Coke's atrocity against its workers and of child labor, the killing and disappearance of union leaders, and 
I personally witnessed this in Guatemala in the mid-80s as a human rights worker. When workers were occupying the coke plant for over a year because of the killing of their union leaders and allowing the military to come into the plant to beat and torture coke workers. And this has happened twice in Guatemala, different plants, and also in El Salvador, and in Mexico, and in China, and Turkey, and India. You see, corporations have no conscience. They have no heart. They have no soul. Just a bottom line, and that's profit. And see, we really need to be intentional in our lives. We can't fall asleep. Those who suffer are depending on us. Esperanza is depending on us. But putting aside for the moment uh, the enormous suffering that goes on in the world, we don't have to look any further than right here in this sanctuary to understand suffering. Someone back in the day started a myth that life was about being happy. And people make large profits writing books on this subject. And actually, life is about struggle. Just staying even. We will always have our ups and downs, and all of us suffer. Maybe not to the extent that little Esperanza suffers, but all of us bear a heavy heart over something at times. Our seniors and our kids included. And this could be from, well, maybe when we were young we lost someone close to us. and Maybe we had a relationship that we invested a lot into and then, there, then we were terribly let down. Or we might have suffered from a severe trauma or of one kind or another. Or whatever it is, it's real to us. And it's caused us suffering. And we need to be conscious also of all those around us who find ourselves there. We have to be so mindful of that. When we understand this, then maybe we will be more sensitive to others. And what we feel in ourselves can be reflected in our compassion for others. Well, then a natural question is, why does God allow this suffering to happen? And in Exodus 3, 7, God says, I hear the cry of my people. I know they are suffering. Well, I want to try and bring a little insight into this enormous question. Now, this is my own theology. It may sound a little Catholic, and I must admit I've been influenced by Roman Catholic missionaries, many of them who gave up their lives for the suffering poor. You see, when I was relating to you about Jesus' life early in the sermon, Jesus didn't even know the total answer to this question back in his day. He would have to learn it for himself, and throughout his ministry, he would learn what his mission was to be. And at the time, he wasn't thinking about dying on the cross at Calvary. I don't even think that would have been his first choice. This was something he would learn. Jesus, having been born into poverty, having lived and ministered among the poor and suffering, he would begin to learn and understand how his earthly ministry would conclude and what he would have to do in making that ultimate sacrifice. Now stay with me on this. See, when Jesus was on the cross, I'm getting Catholic on you now because we're talking about When he was on the cross and he said goodbye to his mom and made sure that she was taken care of, just like she took care of him when he was little. At the very end of his time on the cross, when he finally gave up the spirit to the Father, and he breathed his last breath, and the spirit left his body, at that very point, 
Jesus turned this world over to us. Can you feel me on this? Jesus spent his life setting an example for us to follow. When he died, he gave us the blueprint. And the blueprint said, take care of my suffering people. P.S. Make sure little Esperanza gets to the food tent. And so when we ask why Joy and Pastor Fernanda's people, our sisters and brothers in the UCCP are dying, why their pastors are being taken from their church and being tortured and martyred, or why members of their congregations are being murdered, you see they are following the blueprint that Jesus left them. They are living the gospel. And Jesus didn't say that living the gospel, that you wouldn't suffer persecution for his sake. He said you would. In our New Testament reading today, Romans, see, I went to a Lutheran seminary, and so this was Luther's big, it was his big text. He really, he liked Romans. He he pinned his theology pretty close on on Romans. And see, Luther, he had had a problem with the Catholic Church, and, and, you know, he helped to bring reform, and he was against, you know, what they called good works back in the time, what that meant. And, you know, he was, you know, he was against uh, indulgences and all that type of thing. And so he reacted. But see, when Luther looked like, say, the epistle of James, James tells us we got to engage the world. Well, Luther, he had a hard time because that didn't fit into his theology. And so he'd say, you know, the epistle of James is just a pistol straw. So he used some of the texts to, you know, fit into his theology. But... Good works is not the same thing as engaging the world and being part of it, because we're required to do that. And see, I disagree with Luther on that. And see, I've always had this word righteousness. It's always been in my head, and I've always couldn't quite figure it out. And it's like, you know, I could understand God being righteous, but, you know, humankind, you know, just the way it was used, I could, I could never quite, you know, get my arms around that. And then, but I looked up the Hebrew word for righteousness, which means integrity, justice, truth. Sincere is the best understood as a product of upright moral action. See, I can understand that. Well, let me read it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Kind of sounds like something Martin Luther King said back in the day. Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith From first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And I'm going to add, and it's also by our witness. And what I mean by our witness is what we do, how we engage the world. You see, in Matthew 25, the last judgment, no matter how you understand that reading, whether you take it literally and that's the way it's going to happen in the end days, or just take it as as take it figuratively, it's just a story with a central truth. It still means the same thing. It's based entirely on what we do for our sisters and brothers. Here in this sanctuary, in the streets of Eau Claire, and around the world. Never forgetting little Esperanza. What you did for the least of them, my sisters and brothers, Christ says, you did for me. Amen. And, and Deb's going to come up and she's going to there's a poem about myth, about, and so she's going to read it. And I think we have time to... Thanks, Deb. This comes from Take From Me These Myths, a prayer by Reverend Mark Sandlin. 
Good and gracious God, today, like the rest of the world, when I woke, I wrapped myself in myths. They're comfortable and warming in what can seem like such a cold world. Yes, they're old and worn, but they're familiar, and even the most fashion-forward find comfort in this thread-worn garb. They tell me that while it may not be fair that 1,600 children die from hunger every day, I can do nothing about it. They tell me that the rich shall inherit the earth and that they will be, they will be beneficent rulers. The myths that I wear tell me that giving to the rich is better than giving to those in need. So we as a nation heap blessings upon the rich expecting trickle-down to make it rain on those of us below. Yet we remain drenched in our inability to pay the rent, pay for college, save for the future, at times even believe we have much of a future. They tell me that violence, while abhorrent, is inescapable, a part of the reality of life, that violence is the path we must travel to find peace. So I wrap myself in myths. They're comfortable and warming in what can seem like such a cold world. Yes, they're old and worn, but they are familiar, and even the most fashion-forward find comfort in this thread-worn garb. They tell me that I must shut off who God created me to be and live into the image the world expects of me, because who I am on the inside won't be accepted on the outside. Loving God, take from me this earthly garb, for not only are they old and thread-worn, but they reek. They stink of the stench of power, money, and greed. They have the foul order of prestige, self-importance, and control. They fill my nostrils with an offensive aroma that smacks of a history of abuse, belittlement, and pain. They exude with the suffering they let me ignore. They ooze with the memories of the blood that has been lost. They smell to high heaven and point to my complicity in the lies of this world. Redeeming God, take these robes of myth from me. Let me walk naked through the world if I must, but I wish to walk through it blindly no longer. I wish to breathe in the brilliance of creation and leave behind the stinking myths of humanity. Help me, my God. Free me, my God. Help us, O God. Free us.